Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. Do you love the Bible, or do you sometimes want to throw it across the room? Is your answer to both questions, yes? Join us then for the message, How Does God Speak to Me? Ask you a question. Ask you two questions. Do you love the Bible? Or do you sometimes want to throw it across the room? Yes. <laughs> and is your answer to both questions yes? Well, then join us then for our message today is going to be how, how does God speak to me? We'll be talking a little bit more about the role of Scripture in our lives and in the church. And now I'll share with you this week's Scripture reading coming from Acts and 2 Timothy, Acts 8. 26 through 39. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of their, in her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this? about himself or about someone else. Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You remember the olden days when we used to use... <laughs> Do you remember the olden days? <laughs> the olden days when we used to use paper maps. Before the days where you could just bring up a map on your iPhone or just punch an address into your GPS, underneath the passenger side um, seat in my car is an old Mapsco. And I keep it there just in case I need to get somewhere and all my devices have died. Uh, I, was, I still love looking at maps, whether they're printed on paper or they're glowing on a screen. Whenever I travel, I will literally sit for hours beforehand, not just studying, but internalizing the maps of my intended destination. I want to know where I'm going, where I am at any one time, and I want to be able to see the whole picture at once. Well, maps let us know the lay of the land, how far we've come, how far we still have to go. They give us direction and provide a route for us to get from where we are now to the place we desire to be. Maps let us see different buildings or landmarks and how they're related to one another, and they give us a sense of proportion and depth and scale. A map is great when we want to travel from place to place. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could see a map of our life's journey as we travel from year to year? Where have I been in my life? Where do I want to go? How do I get there? And what obstacles will I meet? When we're young, we may look to our parents to guide us. Later, we rely more on friends, maybe later still on a spouse. Sometimes when we have no clue where we're going, we may wander from job to job or relationship to relationship or city to city. We may have travel companions in life, but we may disagree on the best way to get to our destination. Or maybe we are not even able to agree on a destination to begin with. There was a Geico insurance commercial that came out a few years ago that made me laugh out loud. It shows Tarzan and Jane. And believe me, I got a lot of Tarzan and Jane jokes when I was a kid. But it shows Tarzan and Jane swinging through the jungle, arguing, arguing over which vine to take next. And Jane stops to ask a chimpanzee how to get to the waterfall, and Tarzan insists he knows the right way. Well, unfortunately, without a map, it can be really hard to decide which path to take in life. But in a way, God has given us something like a map, and it's called the Bible. And the Bible clarifies the destination. It provides guidance on the best route. It lays down some rules of the road. It provides some companionship on the journey. And if we stick to the Bible, we'll probably never get too far off the main road. The thing is, the Bible, of course, isn't like a conventional map. One needs to learn how to read a map in order to make good use of it. And likewise, when it comes to the Bible, we need to learn how best to read it. How many of you, when you have a big decision to make, have ever taken the Bible, closed your eyes, opened up, <laughs> and just put your finger down to see what it says? I've done that before. This is, what, this is what I found. The sons of Perez, Heraz, and Hamul. The sons of Zerah, Zimri, Ethan, Heman, Calcol, and Dara. Okay, that wasn't helpful. Let's see here. 
Let's see. Uh, let's. Okay, the sons of Simeon, Nimiel, Jemen, Jereb, Zerashaul. Okay, that wasn't helpful. The members of the half tribe Manasseh, Bashan to Baal Hermon. Okay, that's not helpful. I had stumbled upon the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, where it goes on with just genealogies for nine chapters. <laughs> it was less than helpful. Well, I tried again. This time I found a verse that said, Then he found a fresh jawbone of an ass, reached down and took it, and with it he killed a thousand men. I'd open up to the story of Samson in the book of Judges. I continued to read, but the story of Samson just gets bloodier and bloodier. And I felt relatively sure that God was not calling me to commit mass murder. So I tried one more time. No longer drink only water, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This was the sign from God I was looking for. <laughs> so I decided to follow God's leading right then and there, and I closed my Bible because I didn't think, I'm not going to find anything better than this verse right here. <laughs> now, we all know, though, that there are better ways to read the Bible, but sometimes we need a little help. And that's what the Ethiopian eunuch found when he tried to read the Bible on his own. He needed a little help. At the beginning of the story that Michael read, we find that the Spirit of the Lord manifested as an angel has told the Apostle Philip to go to the southern road that leads out from Jerusalem through what we now call the Gaza Strip and down into Egypt. And there he sees an Ethiopian court official riding in a chariot and reading from the book of Isaiah. And we're told he's a eunuch who is in charge of the entire royal treasury for Ethiopia. And he's been worshiping in Jerusalem and is now returning to his own country. And the Spirit speaks again as God tells Philip to meet up with and join the chariot. And as Philip approaches, he asks the eunuch if he understands what he's reading. Well, how can I, he replies, unless someone guides me. He then invites Philip to join him in his chariot. And the eunuch is reading one of the passages of Isaiah that deals with the suffering servant. So who's the prophet talking about, he asks. And in my mind, I can almost see Philip kind of pausing for a second, taking a deep breath, and then just start telling this eunuch all about Jesus. And evidently the eunuch is mesmerized by Philip's message. Because as they pull up to some water near the road, the eunuch says, Look, here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? So the eunuch stops the chariot, he and Philip get in the water, and Philip baptizes him. And at once the Lord snatches Philip away, and the, the eunuch, though, that goes back to Ethiopia rejoicing, it says, all the way. And the eunuch is never mentioned again in the Bible, but according to tradition, he returned to Ethiopia and began spreading the gospel throughout the land. I do want to pause here in our story just for a moment and take notice of two things. First thing, the very first Gentile convert to Christianity in all of history was a black man from Africa. Number two, as a eunuch, this man was never going to fit into any kind of gender binary as we know it. And if some people had their way, there would be no public bathrooms for this eunuch to use. But on with our story. 
Philip was able to share the story of Jesus with this eunuch through the mutual study of Scripture. There was something about the Scripture that just drew this eunuch in, almost like it was speaking to him. He was compelled to try and find out what it all meant. But before Philip came up to him, the words of Scripture were just words on a page. It was impossible for the unit to get the message that was being revealed, and he needed a guide. And then Philip, led by the Spirit, came and sat beside him, sharing what he knew. And Philip was willing to journey beside the unit to guide him where he needed to go in life. The passage Michael read from 2 Timothy says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now, what does it mean to say that Scripture is inspired? Well, the literal meaning of the word, the term is inspire, is that it's God-breathed. God's breath or spirit is, in a way, embedded in the text of Scripture. But being inspired, however, does not mean that the original authors of the Bible were just essentially court stenographers writing down exactly what God told them to write. Because you see, Scripture is a co-creation between human beings and the Holy Spirit. God and God's people are in this covenant relationship with each other, and as the Spirit worked in and through God's people and were present in the history of God's people, then the people in return did their very best to write an account of that relationship for future generations. We sometimes say that the Bible is the Word of God, and I've used that phrase myself in the past, but it's really Jesus Christ who is the Word of God. Remember how those first verses of the Gospel of John start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in the prologue, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God's definitive Word or expression. The Bible, then, is a book that talks about that Word. And then the Word then meets us as we read the words of Scripture. The Word of God is a living voice of God, and it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be more accurate to say that the Bible contains the Word of God, or that the Bible is a conduit for the Word of God, as opposed to actually being the Word of God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not just active in the writing of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is active in the reading and the sharing of Scripture. The eunuch was looking at the words of Isaiah literally, and he was having trouble figuring out what they meant. And Philip was able to help him see beyond the literal meaning of the words to see the truth of Christ that was shining through. And we know that people still do this today. They never get beyond the literal wooden meaning of the words of the Bible and as a result, they never get to the brilliant truth of Christ that's shining through. For centuries, we Protestants have said that we all need to read the Bible for ourselves. And our Catholic brothers and sisters have said, no, you need the church to tell you what it means. And we Methodists who always love taking that middle path. 
we replied that it's not an either or, but a both and. Yes, we need to read the Bible for ourselves, but we also need to read it in community and to see what our tradition has to say about it. Then we use our experience and our reason, both individually and collectively, in order to let the deep meaning of Scripture penetrate our hearts and our minds and our souls, to penetrate our very lives. We Methodists call this fourfold way, this use of Scripture and tradition and experience and reason, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And I know some theologians have called the Wesleyan quadrilateral the greatest contribution that Methodists have made to the study of theology. And as much as we Methodists love our Wesleyan quadrilateral, we also love our slogan, open hearts, open minds, and open doors. But the denomination of the United Church of Christ, also known as the Congregationalists, they also have a great slogan, which I love to also quote. Their slogan is, God is still speaking. The Spirit is still revealing the truth of God to us. And when we insist on reading the Bible literally, then we shut down that process. We give the Holy Spirit no room to blow, no room to move, and no room to light a tongue of fire over our heads. You see, religious fundamentalism in all of its different manifestations is an anathema to the Holy Spirit. It basically puts the Holy Spirit in a straitjacket, and it denies the Spirit's power to continue to shape human society and to shape the church and to shape us. You see, if the original disciples of Jesus had insisted on reading the Hebrew Scriptures literally, then Christianity may never have gotten off the ground, and we would never have been able to see the light of Christ shining through. And this also means that we need to remember that the Bible is not a book of science and it is not a book of history, at least not a book of history the way a modern book of history is. There are verses in the Bible considering the natural world and ancient history that are not literally true. And that's okay. The Spirit can still speak to us through those passages. The Word of God is still contained there. We need to have no fear of modern science or modern historical research because all truth is God's truth. And therefore, all truth is to be welcomed and not denied or repressed. Some ask the question of whether there are contradictions in the Bible. And my response is that, of course, there are contradictions in the Bible there are contra contradictions in the Bible because the Bible recognizes the contradictions of life. Any account of God that comes through the pen of a human being will at times contradict another account written by another human being. That's because we're all ultimately trying to describe God and God's purposes, a subject that we in no way can ever completely understand. We human beings will always disagree about biblical interpretation, but there is one thing that I've found that all Christian theologians and biblical scholars agree on, whether they're conservative or liberal, from the most far-right far right fundamentalist to the most far-left radical, it's this. If you read and study and ponder the Bible, you will find God there. And the more you let Scripture seep 
into your heart and your soul, the closer you're going to be to God. You see, the Bible is holy ground. And sometimes I wonder if maybe every time we read it, we need to be taking off our shoes. But for the Bible to have any real effect on us, we do have to open its pages and read it. The Holy Spirit can't work uh, in our lives through the Bible if the Bible just gather, gathers dust on the shelf. Just like a map that is never opened has no ability to guide our journey. So take it off the shelf, open the pages, and let, you, let yourself hear the words of God shining through the texts of Scripture. This is actually the Bible that was given to me at my ordination. But it has, a different, it has an additional meaning to me when I was uh, taking it out of the boxes when I was, uh, after our, our flood and, and getting my, my office back in order. There was paper stuck to the bottom of it that I had to pull apart. And now there's, there's worn spots all over here, the back of my nice leather Bible I got for ordination. And at first I was very upset by that. Then I realized, no, I love the fact that this has marks of our flood on it. That shows that this Bible survived, just as we were singing earlier. Well, several years ago, a feminist Bible scholar named Phyllis Tribble, who fervently advocates for the full inclusion of women in both the church and society, she wrote an article, and it was entitled, If the Bible is so patriarchal, how come I love it? Well, I can relate, because we Christians, we have a love affair with the Bible. Sometimes we find comfort in companionship, but other times we want to throw it across the room. We may have a love affair with the Bible, but sometimes we also have a lover's quarrel with the Bible. 500 years ago, Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. So let the Bible lay hold of you. And let the word of God come through the word of God. And let the Holy Spirit inspire you. And remember, God is still speaking. Are we still listening? Amen. I thought that we would do something special for this month, because it's Black History Month. And I thought, you know, we need to take wonderful advantage of the resources that God has brought our way. So I have asked uh, Garth and Karen if for the remaining Sundays in February, if they might give just a short little presentation on moments from black church history. And I asked particularly, what are things white people need to know? <laughs> so I would like to... Um, invite uh, Dr. Karen Baker-Fletcher up here to tell us a little bit about black church history. It's me. I changed my hair. <laughs> the two things Dolly Parton and I have in common is we like to change our hair, and if we can't do anything with it, we just borrow some. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what what people in this church do and do not know. How many of you have heard of Jarena Lee? All right, then she's a good person to talk about this morning. She was born February 11th, 
1783. Uh, so her birthday was just yesterday. And she was the first woman preacher in the African-American Episcopal Church, the A&E Church, which is our sister church as United Methodist. Uh, back then, Richard Allen founded that church, and he was her pastor. She was a member of his church. Uh, she was a le leader in his church. And first, the first, or Mother Bethel, as it's called, uh, is in Philadelphia. So she was born a free black woman in Philadelphia. And she was part of the Wesleyan holiness movement. And so Jarena Lee, and that's J-A-R-E-N-A, J-A-R-E-N-A, and then Lee, L-E-E. -E. She felt this call to preach. And so she let Richard Allen know, and he said, well, we don't license women to preach. We don't ordain women. You can, you know, have meetings in your house for, just for women, basically. And then her husband didn't want her to preach and discouraged her from preaching. He died six years later. <laughs> Which doesn't mean she didn't miss him, but it did free her up a bit. <laughs> um, they were poor, you know, very poor. And, uh, but, but not being able to preach made her physically ill, and she writes about that in her, her journal, in her narrative, called the, the Autobiography of Jarena Lee. And so one day she was at church, and this was in 1817 now, because she was born in 1783, but this was 1817, and there was a Reverend Williams who was preaching, and he lost his place in his text, and he couldn't remember what he was supposed to preach. He couldn't remember his sermon, and she felt this fire in her bones, and she just rose up, and she started to preach. You know, the fancy word for that is exhortation. She gave an exhortation. But anyway, so from that moment on, Bishop Richard Allen decided Truly, this woman was called to preach, and he licensed her to preach. And she's a legacy uh, for all women um, who are licensed to preach and who are in ordained ministry. Never got ordained, but she paved the way to help us get there. I like her. <laughs> Remember, you can always find a recording of our worship service on our website, tumcd.org, on our Facebook page, or a recording through our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And now receive this benediction. May the Word of God keep you on the good road, and may the Holy Spirit blow all around you. 
And may you be a faithful companion to those who travel with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. Join us then for the message, If I don't feel lost, why do I need to be found? You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.